You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Back to Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, when a problem comes along, he must whip it. It is Jeff McLeod Hey, <laughs> it is me, isn't it? How you doing? How am I? I'm fine. So I have this new uh, this new dude working with me in my shop, right? And he is 19 years old. Oh, I remember when I was 19. Dinosaurs ruled the earth. There was a big <laughs> comet in the sky. It was... Yeah, well, I knew what it was going to do. The comet in the sky when I was 19 years old was Nirvana, which, you know, that comet would land a couple of years later. True. Uh, But anyway, you know, I am decidedly not 19 years old, so I don't really have, like, a lot in common with this kid. Not much to talk about, but that's, that's fine because he is not the topic of conversation. The topic of conversation is another woman who is only a few years older than me, Mm -hmm. right? And we were talking about how, you know, over the last, you know, year or two, I'm, I'm sure you've read uh, the newspaper, how we've had a global pandemic and, you know, things get canceled. And stuff Surely like that. you can't be serious. Yeah, pull the other leg, <laughs> you, big, you big prankster. Right. She said that she had tickets to a couple of concerts. And for the love of me, I can't remember what the other one was. But one of them, she said, was disturbed. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I think you got off lucky. And then I, you know, I was kind of <laughs> laughing to myself. And I was like, well, I'm not really, uh, you know, yo, thank God for small favors. But, I, you know, I'm not really one of the judge I told her. I said, I don't really like a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of aggressive music. Right. So I'm, I'm not really one to judge. Mm-hmm. And then she said something about, you know, she just likes the guy's voice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, I... Um, you know, I have tickets. Actually, the concert's coming up in a couple of weeks here. I have tickets to go see Ghost and Volbeat in Worcester next yeah. month. And she was like, Volbeat? And this is this is what she said. I swear, I swear, hand to God, this is what she said. She goes, you know, they have a lot of marsh pits in their shows. They do have a lot of marsh pits. It's very muddy and wet in those marsh pits. I said, yeah, I should be all right. I'm going to bring my mosquito spray. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, she's only a few years older than me. It's like, no, it's it's mosh. Mosh pits. M-O-S-A. For Christ's sake, it's been around for so long and you haven't picked up on it yet. And, you know, you're going to see Disturbed and you think it's a, a marsh pit? I mean, how completely out of touch. Yeah. I would have asked a follow-up wording question just to see if you carried over that idiom to some other words like people often say washington and i said like what's the capital of the united states of america if you would have said washington dc i've been like all right well morsh pit makes sense yeah so i was telling the uh the 19 year old kid that story and he just had this like glazed look over his eyes (laughs) 
Like, not only do I not know what she's talking about, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I mean, Disturbed last had a good record when that kid was three. And, you know, so he probably doesn't know who they are. And secondly, do 19-year-olds even go to shows where they have mosh pits? I'll ask my kids. I think that they went to, when they went to Jeff, see Jeff Rosenstock, they came back and they said, there was a pit. And I said, did you guys get in it? And they said, No. No, because they're not stupid like your generation. I don't want a concussion. Yeah. I wanted actually, a concert t-shirt. Actually, my friend's brother, a bunch of us had all gone out to eat. And he's got, you know, kids probably, you know, roughly the same age as your kids. Yeah. And he was telling me that he was with his kids at some show. I don't remember what concert it was. And some... But somebody in the audience started like moshing or you know, as we called it, slam dancing or whatever. And some other kids yelled out, this isn't the 90s, which Aww. I thought was which I thought was hilarious. I know that I'll never live to see the day where where like my ultimately my grandkids are, are going to a concert and they end up doing like the Buck Rogers in the 25th century space disco dance with the rope <laughs> lights because I know that's coming. But I don't know that I'm going to be able to live long enough to see it. And then they smash what? up the fire, the f- flight deck because they get turned on by the music. One can only hope. <laughs> One can only hope. Uh, so, hey, we have a musical trivia question for today's uh, very popular oh, right. and always well-received trivia question. Uh, we discussed uh, on a previous trivia question who got the one and only best disco Grammy. So this category for best rap song uh, still, you know, carries on to this day. But who was the first? Who got the first Grammy for best rap song? I have an idea, but I'm going to save it till the end of the show. You save that idea. You hold on to it. I'm holding it. All right. So this is going to be the week beginning January the 24th. And my extensive record keeping shows me that it is your turn to start. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Good. January 24th, 1972. Japanese Army Sergeant Shoichi Yokoi is found hiding in the jungles of Guam, where he's been fighting World War II since the beginning of World War II. (laughs) He continued stealing chickens and pigs and and surveillance for 30-some-odd years after the Second World War ended. That is so funny. Like I'm sure this has happened to you when you were a little kid and you and your friends are all playing hide-and-seek, and then they, like end the game but don't tell you and you're still in right. your bitchin' hiding place. <laughs> right. They'll never find me here. He must have been thinking like, eventually they'll come relieve me. I'm gonna run out of bullets or yeah. something. And I'm not sure what my orders are, but it feels like Christmas again and <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've been here past my birthday. And I don't know if he interacted with like people who are local to the area, villagers in the area who are like, oh, there's that crazy Japanese guy who lives in the cave. Right. But ultimately to get him to come out they ended up finding his commanding officer from his unit, and that guy went to the island is like, hey, <laughs> come out. The war's over. You're ordered to stand down. And that's when he finally came out and was sort of brought back into Japanese society. Those are the kind of dedicated workers that people who write management books dream of, you know, that you can hire. And it's like, you're going to work in this cube until you die of old age. and be like, that's right, boss. And then the building's on fire five days later, and they're still there typing away like mad. <laughs> I got a question because you sure. probably know more about history of this stuff than I do. Was Guam an American territory during World War II? No. It, well, I mean, <laughs> we took it at one point. Okay. All right. It became an American protectorate after 1945. Okay. So whenever he moved in, it was under whose 
Who owned Guam? It was uh, Japanese control. It was, Jap- it was an island under Japanese control, yeah. All right, so it was under Japanese control, and then we moved in, we took over, and it was an American territory by the 70s, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Like I said, he was hanging out in the jungle, so he was still con- conducting guerrilla war for 30 years. And Guam is seriously like the size of like Rhode, Rhode Island. Island. Yeah, it's, it's small. It's yeah, really it's, small, right. It's Guam-sized, as they say. <laughs> That's how they measure small things. Uh, so let's move on to the next day. So January 25th, 1915 is the first transcontinental telephone call. Took place from New York to San Francisco. Your friend and mine, Alexander Graham Bell in New York, calls his friend Thomas Watson in San Francisco. And he repeats his famous first line. Mr. Watson, come here. I want you. Ah, <laughs> which there's nothing awkward about that phrase. No, 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 no. Yeah. Especially when Watson responded, Alexander, what are you wearing? <laughs> He, he responded with ASL. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 62 years old. <laughs> I'm in New York. Don't you remember why we're doing this? <laughs> so this is this was to celebrate the beginning of the first transcontinental long distance phone line. Yep. And it was interesting that they were able to sort of get Alexander Graham Bell and Thomas Watson to agree to do this, which is clearly a publicity stunt, duplicating the, the very first thing transmitted over telephone lines when Bell spilled acid all over himself and yelled out for Watson to come and help him as he was getting ready to demonstrate the telephone. He also but, uh, did the call after 8 p.m. because of peak hours. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And he dialed um, pound 216 to change long-distance carriers before he... Nobody remembers those numbers, huh? You know, I was about to say he also uh, used 1-800-COLLECT to <laughs> save himself a couple yes. of bucks. Yeah. Don't you remember he, those? It was like pound 552 and, and some other ones. And, and all that does is it changes your long-distance provider to a different long-distance provider for that particular call. So oh, you no. get billed differently? No, I don't remember that. I remember the 1-800-COLLECT commercials. Mm-hmm. And I remember like l- just long distance being a thing. Like You couldn't even call New Bedford to Fall River, which was only 20 miles, 25 yeah. miles, yep. without there being a small charge. Right. But now, I mean, you can talk to anybody anywhere for free, basically. Yeah, it's the one sort of non drawback i think of like the breaking up of the bell system was the evolution of how long distance became just phone calls and they're no longer meter measured the same way that they were they're not measured minute by minute anymore right and there are no message unit billing so it's nice um so yes think about it man this show would not be possible well it cost a fortune you're uh 110 miles away from me no, 100. It's true. It's 100 miles, exactly, door to door. I remember, like, it wasn't that long ago, 1999 to 2000 or so, I was still paying 25 cents a minute for long distance. I still have to dial into Earthlink for work. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and check email from home, and it would cost me 25 cents every time I did it, and that was the long distance charge oh. on my phone bill for the call that Earthlink made over the long distance lines to their service farm. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, those days are over. Thank God. All right. Now I just pay $250 a month for cell phones. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'm saving any money. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. don't feel like I am. Exactly. And, and how many phone calls do you make a week? I make like one. You. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, that's, and I don't even do those over the phone. All right. So moving on to the 26th. January 26th. I like to call this the very beginning of the satanic panic when the Catholic Church rose up against the most pernicious and evil form of expression in the history of the world. Oh, no. In 1962. Go on. Bishop Burke of the Buffalo Catholic Diocese declares that the twist 
by Chubby Checker is too impure and bans it from all Catholic schools. And and what came of this? <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to which Chubby Checker replied, Come on, babe. <laughs> you know, it's one of those like people who get worked up over the dumbest stuff. Yeah. As evidenced by this particular story. And also, I'm quite sure Chubby Checker was over there diving into a pool full of coins like Scrooge McDuck, really giving a crap what the Catholic Church has to say. It's like, all right, all right I can't have my songs in Catholic schools. Fine, I'll just make my Whatever. millions upon millions elsewhere. Yeah. Well, I think probably because they misunderstood the lyrics. So it's like, come on, baby, the crucifix, right? Maybe that's what they thought it meant or something. Or or they started playing it backwards and it was actually Pat Boone or something. And it's the all-Catholic version of the 1960s hits of the 60s. There is a, uh, a couple of podcasts that I listen to that talk about, like, moral panics and stuff like that. I'm surprised they didn't cover this one. I actually did not know that song was banned by the Catholic Church. Uh, yeah. When I went to Catholic school, the twist was still all the rage because we were really modern and progressive. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, 62, you said, not long after that is the whole controversy with Louie Louie. Yeah, and yes, whatnot. yes. Yeah. <laughs> the FBI spends a million dollars investigating to find out that they can't figure out what any of the lyrics are. But the twist is just so, I mean, it, I, I, don't, I don't even have the words. It's like... It's so innocent. It's like yeah, the the dance itself is not suggestive. It looks like you're drying off your butt after taking a shower with a towel, you know? Well, I think it's it's anything that like any group of people like to ultimately end up doing together becomes like a problem. It's it's this sort of collective action even if it's something as stupid as just swif- swiveling your hips yep. to chubby checker. You know? I mean, on the bad side, like, I can see it from the Catholic... I think what really happened is it was just like a preemptive strike because they knew ultimately there would be that cover song with the fat boys. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Many years later. Trying to save them from that in the future. Right. May or may not be a worse song ever someday. My guess is that Bishop Burke has no rhythm. Yep. And he just could never get the steps down. And he's like, well, if I can't do it, nobody can. (laughs) Oh, wait, you know what? I can make that happen. I've got stroke, so to speak. All right. And there's the joke. There's the joke we were looking for. All right. (laughs) So moving on to the 27th. You know, one of the categories that we do on days around here are our weird holidays. And I feel like we just don't do that enough. So we're going to do one right now, Jeff. Mm. January the 27th is Chocolate Cake Day. I'll take it. I love chocolate cake. I do, too. Chocolate cake with chocolate frosting. Yep, yep. Cho- chocolate cake with chocolate frosting and chocolate chips in it. Oh, my God. Served with chocolate and chocolate ice cream. Oh, well, you're getting to the point where they're like only a pregnant woman could thoroughly enjoy this. Yes, it, it's so much chocolate, you end up becoming a citizen of Brazil. I So much chocolate is in it. I remember you telling me a story one time that your daughter made like a chocolate cake that was, it was just too much. <laughs> Covered in squares. Oh, that one? No, not the one covered in squares. It was, uh, she put too much cocoa in the mix or something, and it was just like... I don't know how to describe it other than it was like, it was painfully chocolatey. (laughs) Does that make sense? Like, oh, this is the most chocolatey thing I've ever eaten, and I've eaten 80% cocoa chocolate. Holy mackerel. You know, I had to go out and drink like 14 gallons of milk just to get it down, and I got it all down, I'm just going to tell you. Just to offset it, Uh, yeah. It was good, though. Very chocolatey. Yep. <laughs> it was like getting punched in the face with a chocolate fist. <laughs> Can you make it again for my birthday? Can you make- yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm. 
Double up that cocoa. <laughs> a little more chocolate to it. I think that's about all I can really say. I love chocolate cake. I haven't made it in a long time. Maybe I'll have to make it. And you can't say anything about chocolate cake without including the word that the internet collectively hates. Moist. All right, so next up on the 28th. January 28th, probably, and I'm going to argue the best American fantasy TV series, TV series Fantasy Island premieres. Okay. And it's based on a couple of TV movies that had come out before it and were super duper popular and built on the ideas of an island where you can go on vacation and all of your dreams will come true. And like in just about any other telling of this kind of story, because this is a story trope from a million years ago, there's a cost associated with each of the fantasies that you get. Right. Good or bad, these were pretty mild for the TV show, mm-hmm. but you always there was always a lesson to be had in there. Like, if you wanted to be the world's greatest tennis player, like your wife left you for the guy that collects the tennis balls on the side of the thing, or if you were really in love with a woman and finally had a relationship with her, you know, you got eaten by a shark while you were trying to fight with Harvey Villachez on the <laughs> beach using nothing but seagulls. So Yeah, it was an anthology show. Like, there was the, the main star was Ricardo Montalban. Yes. Who played Mr. Rourke, and then he had his assistant, Hervé Villachez, played by... I know his assistant's name was Tattoo. Yes. Tattoo, played by Hervé Villachez. And, yes. um, yeah, it was an anthology series. So, like, those two were on every every show. Right, and what made it an anthology was the different people that came to the island yes. every week and the different fantasies that they had. It was a really good framing device. Yes for how the show would work. And it, it provided with like an, an infinite number of possible stories to tell. Right. And it, of which they told five over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it all, yeah, they tended to have that, like you alluded to before, like a monkey's paw kind of twist to it. Yes. Almost like that movie Bedazzled. You know, you, you can't really ask the devil yes. for favors. It used to, I remember it used to come on Saturday nights at like 9 o'clock or no, 10 o'clock. Whatever it was, it came on after the Love Boat. So you get all warmed up for it because the Love Boat was like the same show, yes, except on a boat without the fantasy element. Yep. The Love Boat was like you watch the Love Boat, which, like you just said, was like the same show, and then Fantasy Island would come on afterwards, and it would basically answer the question: What if all these stories happened, but with wicked f-ed up endings? <laughs> yes thing that was kind of cool about fantasy island is that none of the guests ever died they always left the island at the end of the did you enjoy your vacation on fantasy island charles nelson riley well i did <laughs> but i never expected to be a world war one pilot you know what i mean it's like okay <laughs> but that's like kind of how they ended you yep. know everybody leaves a better person than they arrive and then i'm never coming back here you son of a bitch <laughs> <laughs> Rourke, I'll kill you. I'll kill you, I swear. Yeah, and then, you know, Mr. Rourke and Tattoo go off and do the twist and piss off the Catholic <laughs> Church or whatever. And then next week, some more idiots come to the island with more with more problems. But uh, it was really innovative. And then they made it, like, didn't they make a really dark remake of it just a few years back? Yeah, yeah, they did. I, which lasted, like, five episodes, and people were like, this is so stupid. Because yeah. it wasn't fun. Yeah, exactly. They didn't have Hervé Villachez. That's why. The star of the show. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. All right, so moving on to the 29th, January the 29th, 1979, your friend of mine, Patty Hearst, is given clemency. Oh, my darling. Oh, my darling. My darling clemency. Anyway, she's given clemency by uh, Jimmy Carter, who was president at the time, Hmm. after she served 22 uh, months of a seven-year prison sentence for bank robbery. 
And she was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation yeah. Army. And, uh, Back in 74, back yeah. In the heady days of the 1970s when there were still leftist terrorists who would try and rob banks and give the money to poor right. people. They demanded her family to deliver $70 worth of food to every needy person in California. The estimated cost would have been like $400 million. Right. So, yeah, that's a lot of cabbage Yeah, right there. exactly, especially... Ni- like, literally a lot in of cabbage. 1979, uh, in 1979, 1974 money, right. Yeah, literally a lot of cabbage. <laughs> you expect me to eat this? Uh, anyway... Uh, Patty Hearst's father tried to donate $2 million worth of food, which is a little bit less than $400 million. But the distrib- distribution turned into chaos, and the Sibionese uh, Liberation Army refused to release Patty. Yeah. yeah, it was after that that she did the bank robbery thing, and when she was finally kind of arrested, and all other four other members of the Sibionese Liberation Army, they weren't even really a squad. Right. They were like a Sibionese Liberation, almost baseball team. Dodgeball team, yeah. <laughs> Sibionese Liberation Bowling League uh, <laughs> members. Uh, not one full team. Uh, anyway, when they were finally arrested, she was like, hey, man, I was raped and coerced into doing this. And, and her psychologist described her as having Stockholm Syndrome, which is why she participated. And probably getting the, you know, the Clarence Clemency from from uh, Jimmy <laughs> Carter wasn't the worst thing that happened. Clarence Clemency. <laughs> Yeah, they played her out with a saxophone. Yeah. <laughs> she came walking out, Clarence Clemency. And then, you know, she I think it was uh, Bill Clinton finally was like, eh, you know what, they just expunged her record and, and pardoned her for it. Yeah, uh, yeah it was Bill Clinton. Uh, sometime yep, later. Yep. Was that Clinton? Yeah, like 2001 or something like that. I'm going to guess that was like one of those on the way out the door things because he yeah. was only president. I'll show you yeah, guys. He was only pre- after two terms, and you're going to give me all kinds of crap? Well, I'm going to let Patty Hearst loose on all of you. <laughs> yeah, because he was only president for like three weeks in 2001, right? Well, I heard I heard he was asked for for a special favor by Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> Since she's already been given Clarence Clemency. <laughs> such a dick. All right. Uh, wrapping up the week. January 30th, 1975. Erno Rubik, whose name you may recognize. I do. Applies for a patent for his magic cube invention, later known and patented as the Rubik's Cube. Yes. I never had a Rubik's Cube, Bill. Listen, listen. That's a Rubik's Cube. I have one in my hand right now. Is it really? Yeah, I have one in my hand right now. I know that sound. Like, anybody from our generation, if they hear that noise, they're going to know exactly what that is. Right. Yeah, that was like one of those things a couple of years ago. I got really ambitious with a couple of pro- like things, I guess you could say, in my life. I had stopped riding my bicycle. I had an injury. But once that injury kind of like resolved itself, I started riding again and then ended up breaking my distance record. And I was like, okay, now now that I'm on this like accomplishment role, what else can I do? And I was like, I'm going to learn how to solve Rubik's Cube. So I bought myself a Rubik's Cube and I found a couple of websites and I learned all the algorithms and I can solve Rubik's Cube. While during the pre-show, I was messing around with it and I uh, messed it up and then solved it. It's uh once you know the the patterns to solving it, it's yeah. easy. It's as easy as memorizing, we'll say five phone numbers and who they go to. God, that puts me right out of that. <laughs> I'm I'm lost. When I woke up in the ambulance, being transported from one hospital where they had just revived me from being dead for a little while, to another hospital where they were going to try and keep me alive so that I wasn't dead anymore, and I snapped open, my eyes open, first time I've been conscious in three hours. And I looked up at the the guy in the back of the ambulance, and I said, I'm in an ambulance, aren't I? And he looked at me, and he goes, oh, shit, this guy's lucid, which is never a good thing to hear when you wake up. (laughs) And then he said, who can we call to tell them that you're alive? And I said, I don't know. 
All my phone numbers are on my phone. <laughs> I don't know anybody anymore. I said, I can give you my mother's number. She lives 100 miles from me. <laughs> But that's the only number I can remember. She's bound to know somebody. <laughs> yeah, Rubik's Cube. He said he filed for a patent. That's a date? Yes. Yep. Now, it seems to me that he didn't because there were so many knockoffs. You, There was Rubik's Cube, and then there was Magic Cube, and then there was yeah, other... Wonder Cube, yeah. and then there was Robix Cube, <laughs> and then there was Rubik's Cube. I know, there were a million of them. And I and I only remember, like, when I was in middle school, when they were first really popular, it was, like, only the rich kids that had the actual Rubik's Cubes. Right. And it was, like, the rest of us that, if we were lucky, we'd get, like, the cheapo, like, the CVS pharmacy brand knockoff Rubik's Cube that had only three colors on it or something. Yeah, and, and, it, and it weighed, like decidingly less than a Rubik's Cube, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and if you spun it too fast, all the pieces just flung off into the trash. Right. And then there was all sorts of, like, other, like, little puzzle things like that, too. I remember one with links on it, yep. uh, Missing Link, yep. I think it was called, or whatever. Th- yep. There was another... There was one with triangles, too, that was really interesting yeah, was that about, I used to like uh, to play with. I was just about to mention that one. Well, I remember one that was yeah, it was shaped like a pyramid. There was another one that was like an orb and stuff. There was all sorts of other ones. There was a guy that I met one time at a bar who had like, I forget, I think it was like 10 rows of 10 Rubik's Cube. It was like an ultimate Rubik's Cube. He was like really, really good at those and he was working on solving that one. Imagine that you, your life is so in the bag that you can spend time becoming really good at the 10 row Rubik's Cube. What do you do for fun? I saw 10-sided Rubik's Cubes. Like, really? Like, you don't, like, have to shop or do laundry or anything? <laughs> like, you have time for that? Like, do you watch do you, do you watch TV? Like, what do you do? Yeah. Like, how do you, do you have time to shower? Yeah. Like, what? what's up with that? That was my next question. Yeah. Why do you smell like hot garbage? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, smell like a, you smell like hot garbage and you drink a lot, huh? Is that, is that the secret? Yeah. This week's episode of Twibbly is brought to you by Necessary Chances by Norman Duchesneau and published through Austin McCauley. Necessary Chances is a collection of 50 plus stories of actual events told exactly how they happened to the author. The stories span from more than 30 years in the field of law enforcement. As often as possible, the stories are told in a humorous manner because, well, we all deserve a laugh, don't we? The author hopes that this book might inspire one good man or woman to take up the shield someday. In today's world of miscommunication and misunderstanding, the author hopes that somehow, somewhere, a dialogue might open that wasn't there before. Necessary Chances has received five out of five star reviews on Amazon and Austin McCulley. Once again, thank you to Necessary Chances for sponsoring this week's episode. Available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and through Austin McCulley Publishing. Links will be in the show notes. Moving on to the celebrity birthdays, uh, January the 24th, 1951, Russian-born comedian Yakov Smirnov. Ah, still selling, telling the same kind of jokes that people who are terrified of the Soviet Union like to laugh yeah, at. Yeah, kind of an internet meme nowadays. Uh, if you ever see somebody use the internet meme in Soviet Russia and then they reverse whatever is said. So, like, mm-hmm. in this particular case, in Soviet Russia, the birthday celebrates Yule. That was Yakov Shmidov's gimmick. He was a former Russian citizen, and he yeah, defected, to, defected to the United yep, States. Yep, and he would... Pretty much the plot of the movie Moscow on the Hudson. Yes, and he just made a bunch of jokes, you know, making fun of the Soviet Union, and then... 
when the Soviet Union <laughs> collapsed and there was no more USSR, your friend of mine, Yakov, was kind of out of a job. He, kn- he knows where the money is. He's no fool. Yeah. He went to middle America, to Branson, Missouri, like Christian Las Vegas. Yep. And it's like, I can continue to sell these same Russian jokes to these yokels yep. for forever. <laughs> they always think it's funny to talk about Soviet Russia. Right. The thing is right now, like, I'm not surprised if he doesn't end up with, like, a bowl of soup delivered specifically by Vladimir Putin to him, telling him to shut up. <laughs> he actually owns his own comedy club called Yakov's in, uh, yep, in, uh, in Branson, Missouri. In Branson, Missouri, the <laughs> jokes tell you. <laughs> so moving on to the 25th. Yeah, January 25th, 1943. Uh, Artur Chipo, independent horror director who became way more famous after he started making good movies. Toby Hooper. Oh, yes. Who hasn't made stuff in a long time, but like is like that foundational 1970s horror director, directed the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yep. Directed. That's that's what I know him best for. But then yeah. we like before the show we were at on his IMDb. Like what else did he do? It's like oh my god, he's done everything. Yeah, he, he did a bunch of big budget movies. He did Poltergeist. He directed Life Force with Steve Railsback. He directed the video for Billy Idol's Dancing with Myself. Did he? He did. That's amazing. In Salem's Lot TV series, the miniseries yep. with David Soul. Yep. He directed that too. Funhouse, which is like a great sl- slasher movie made for eight dollars. Yeah, but. Still, it's not a bad movie. It's just cheap. And after that, he sort of went on and did other stuff, a lot of TV, like Night Visions and Shadow Realm and Crocodile. And he was really active through the 80s and hasn't done stuff in a while because he may... He's still alive. No, he's dead. He's been dead since 2017. Yeah, that's probably why he hasn't done much lately. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he's been kind of slowed down. I wonder if he's waiting to get his Clarence Clemency. So, he's dead. <laughs> All right, so moving on to the 26th. Oh, my goodness. What a badass right here. January 26th, 1892, a woman by the name of Bessie Coleman. Now, Bessie Coleman was the world's first black female aviator to obtain a pilot's license in 1921. Yep. And now her father was actually mostly of Cherokee descent, so that also makes her the first female Native American to uh, earn a pilot's license. But here's the trick, all right? U.S. pilot schools, because this is, you know, 1921. 1921. Yeah, U.S. pilot schools were unwilling to take on a black female student. So she learns French, goes to Paris, and got her license over there. What, What a badass. Yeah, that's definitely badass. She, she, I'm sure she followed, like, the if Josephine Baker can do this, I can do this, too. Yeah. France, as far as sort of helping show African Americans what society was like when they weren't discriminated against, provided the backdrop for that because of the First World War. There were a ton of the only American soldiers to ever serve, serve under a foreign command were the Harlem Hellfighters, which was an African American division sent to France and fought under the French flag. Uh-huh. So all those guys learned how, what it was like to be French, and they didn't want to come back. They brought jazz to France. Josephine Baker went to France, stayed in France. So it, it doesn't surprise me that Bessie, Bessie Coleman was like, well, if I can't fly here, I know where I can fly. I can fly in Paris. I love Paris in the springtime. Going on to the 27th. January 27th, 1959. A guy who used to yell at me from the TV and now I think yells at post office boxes. <laughs> Keith Olbermann. A news presenter who sort of helped put MSNBC on the map after Phil Donahue got fired. And then they changed the management and he kind of got punched out. He actually started off, he was a sportscaster. 
Yeah. The sports yes. announcer. And then he was over on MSNBC. He used to have a show called The Countdown that I actually used yep. to listen to as a podcast that I quite enjoyed. And then he got fired from that. And then they brought him back. And then they fired him again. And then at the beginning of Trump's presidency, he was working for GQ magazine, but like yes. on you on the, on their YouTube channel. YouTube channel. Yeah. yeah, just basically you know ranting on and on about Donald Trump. And then I I guess your friend of mine Keith kind of like became a victim of his own persona and. You know, as crazy cuckoo bird, some of these conspiracy theorists that we always tend to make fun of, you know, like the QAnon people, he became like the left wing branch of QAnon, I guess you could say. Yeah, he kind of went the other way. Yeah, definitely yeah. into the deep state stuff. He's out there. It's a shame because I always thought he was entertaining and informative and I could understand the rage that he had when he had it. And yep. the world has become more full of high strangeness and, and a personality like his on the left, I think, would be welcome. But even I know that that is so ripe for parody and weaponization that it would never fly. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, the left have their own cuckoo bird, and it's it's Keith, which yes. it pains me to say because I I did like the guy, but I also recognize when it's time to jump ship, and I jump ship. All right. Speaking of jumping ship, that that's a horrible segue into uh, <laughs> <laughs> January twenty eighth, nineteen fifty six. German musician by the name of Pete Schilling, and if you don't, I, I hit wonder. Yeah. <laughs> He had a famous song in the uh, early going of the 80s called Major Tom, which had one hell of a hook for a chorus. You know the song I'm talking about, right? I, I do indeed. It's, it's, it's a weird-ass 20-year-later sequel to Space Oddity that's done as like a German pop song yep. and translated into English, so it almost doesn't make sense <laughs> because the words sort of have to rhyme. So the meaning of the song gets muddled. Yeah. It's, but yes, I know exactly which song that is. It's good, though. I like that song. You know what? I, I don't think it's a bad song. Yeah. I just think it's a weird one. Yeah. You know what I remember the best about that song is I had this, this friend named Chris, and he was, like, destined to be a townie, you know? But he was telling me about the song. He goes, oh, I think you'll like this song. It mentions computers. You like computers, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, you know how I like songs about computers. That's exactly what I look for in a pop song, Chris. Computers. <laughs> All right, moving on to the 29th. January 29th, 1949, drummer and producer of the first few Ramones records, Tommy Ramone. Oh, hey. His name has uh, dicriticals over many letters, so I don't know how to pronounce the real one, so I'm just going to call him Tommy Ramone. Sure. <laughs> Hungarian-American rock drummer, and he was like, in interviews that I've watched with Didi Ramone, he always described Tommy as like, yeah, he was the one who knew how to do stuff, like cook food. <laughs> so, so, so it was the the one Ramon that kind of had his had his act together, and I guess that's probably why he was able to produce. Yeah, that's really funny, too. Like, I watched a documentary. I think we brought something like this up before. I watched a documentary called End of the Century, which is, you know, about the Ramones. And it's so funny. When you're a little kid, you idolize rock stars. And then as you get to be an adult and you're, like, seeing these interviews – and with the Ramones and with certain members of KISS, I'm like, oh, my God, these guys are not really smart people at all. But Tommy wasn't actually a Ramone. You know, he was just kind of there. He was a producer and he played the drums, but he wasn't like the drummer for the Ramones. He was just kind of right. there. 
You, you know, later they filled him in with Marky Ramone, and like, right. they didn't start the band with him. They just He was just like a session drummer, and they were like, yeah, we need a fourth guy for the album cover, sorry. <laughs> and uh, speaking of drummers, wrapping up the Celebrity Birthdays, we kind of took a crap on him last week, so let's uh, give him the respect he deserves this week. Uh, right. January the 30th, 1951, lead singer for Genesis and drummer extraordinaire, Mr. Phil Collins. Yep. Hey, there we go. Phil Collins, who, uh, like I maintain, is the best part of, of the transitional period in Genesis. And him him sort of taking on the reins as the singer was is led to my favorite Genesis records. Yep. And, so uh, I have a cab in Genesis. Yeah, I was just talking with my friend Tom, not Tom... Ramon, Tommy, Tom Baker. We had given some thought about going to see Genesis, and in real time, Genesis is actually playing Boston tonight. But that was oh. a couple of months ago, not in not in uh, Twibley time. In real we time, we haven't come from the past to the future. Not yet. We're actually in the past. Yes, we were looking at the set list, uh, you know, trying to decide whether we wanted to go to that concert or not. And Abacab wasn't on the set list, and that was kind of the deal breaker. Oh. I love that part in Abacab where it goes. That's <laughs> <laughs> half of the songs on that record. I but know. Yes. They, uh, if they would have played that just as an interlude, it would have made the concert worth it. Yeah. Well. In between songs, it goes. And the crowd just goes nuts. Phil gets a lot of smack for, for how hard they leaned into being a sort of poppy, rocky band in the 80s. But. I got nothing but love for him. Yep. So. Of course, you know, with everybody with a body of work as large as Phil Collins has, you're going to have some absolute knockoff, like 100% what great songs like Abacab, like we just mentioned. Yep. And unfortunately, you're also going to have the worst song ever. All right, Jeff, what do we got in the canon this week? All right. Are you ready, Bill? I'm ready. I feel like I should learn how to do this in Spanish, but uh, I don't know Spanish, and I was never good at learning languages, so so there's that. Mm-hmm. I take you back to the pop-filled nights of 2002, where you may have found yourself at a wedding, perhaps, or a bingo hall with a <laughs> line dance, or potentially a you were at a 50th, or a 50th anniversary party for for someone you know retirement party and the dj after being tired of we are family and the electric slide throws on the ketchup song you know i know this song because in the early goings of the 2000s there was you know the macarena and there was this like guy at work i don't know if he was related to the other guy chris but you know destined to be a townie you know very much into pop music and all that stuff or top i shouldn't say pop music i should say top 40 music and then he asked me if I had ever heard the ketchup song. And I was like, I don't know what the hell a ketchup song is. I looked up the ketchup song when I got you know home to the internet. And man, talk about having absolutely no imagination whatsoever. <laughs> the, the ketchup song is by a three-girl vocal group called Las Ketchup. Las Ketchup, who are the daughters of a other Spanish a singer known as the tomato. Mm. I guess he married the sugar and puree button. <laughs> Before we get into the dissection, uh, let's play yes, a clip. A, let's play a clip of the ketchup song. <laughs>
Okay, now, right there is the funniest part of the song, okay? That chorus, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It's meant to sound like, well, okay, so like the story of the song is there's a guy at a bar who hears his favorite song, which is Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang, and then attempts to sing along with it on the dance floor. Doesn't know the words, because he doesn't speak English in this Spanish version of the song. Yep. So he just makes a bunch of sort of noises that sort of resemble the syllables in the chorus to Rapper's Delight. Whereupon it would be like if Bill and I had recorded a song called, uh, let's call it the Ajou song (laughs) in French. And I don't speak any French. And then... Oh, there's a perfect example of that. There is a song called J'arrête toujours femme de toi by the police. And all the lyrics are in French. I don't speak French, but I can make noises that sound like that song to sing right. along with it. Yes. Right. So yeah, there's there's the there's a parallel line. So yeah, the chorus is it's basically the girls who I, I'm gonna just guess they don't really speak a lot of English. There is a Spanglish version of this song. Yes. Um, yeah, that's the one that I know yeah. more than the others. But like do you remember uh Shona Knife? They were like a, a, a yes. Japanese punk yep, rock Japanese band. band. Yeah, but they used yep. to do like Ramones covers, but they didn't speak English. They just kind of like sang around right. ph- phonetically, and it was awesome. Right. And the the other thing that goes along with this catch-up song, which uh, it just makes me laugh saying that out loud, is there was a dance that went along with it, too. Yes, there is. Yeah. I mean, this is such a cash-in. Because the Macarena was like really popular at the time. And you could just see the record companies go, all right. The lyrics are in Spanish. Do we have any Spanish singers? Yes, we do. I think the story actually is is like this. Is, is Manuel Ruiz wrote the song, right? He's the producer, and he wrote it and recorded it and was like, hey, there's these girls that are the daughters of this this other band, and they have this, they have this song that we put together. What do you think? And went to this other record company in Spain, and the guy's like, yeah, this is cool, but this is way bigger than what we're going to hear. We can sell this thing everywhere if we find the right people to distribute it. So they approached Sony, yep. and they got signed at Sony, which is why it ended up going like to number one in New Zealand and Australia. They made the Portuguese version. They made the Spanglish version, and it went all over the place because they had that giant reach. They could hear like they could hear the poppy doofiness of it, and as catchy as it was, it was like, you know, I'm too sexy for my shirt, kind of dumb as far as songs go. I think the big cash-in was the fact that it had like a little dance that went along with it because the Macarena was not popular because it's a good song. It's not a good song. Right. We've established this. It's just, it had the little dance that went through, you know, with it. Now, the last catch-up song has a little dance that goes with it too, just in case the yes. Macarena was a little too complex. You'll hold on to. This dance is dumb. Yeah. You don't have to be as, as coordinated to do right. it. Right. It had like three moves to it, and it was like two of the moves were right out of the hand jive. Yeah. You know? Again, yeah. if the hand jive's a little too uh, tough for you to remember, we've got the solution for you. Lost catch-up. Now, you, you told me you looked up like how many millions of times just stupid song gets yep, played on I lo- yep, Spotify, I looked right? it up on Spotify, which is hilarious. Now, I'm going to guess that Lost Ketchup is still very it's still very popular, you know, over in Western Europe where they're from because they they have 1.2 million monthly listens. That's a lot. I don't think it's because they're showing up on like somebody's, you know, intentional playlist. I think they're showing up in weddings. And they're showing up and people are playing them at functions. That could be it too. Through Spotify. And I think that's where, like, it's like the Macarena. You're never going to hear the Macarena on the radio unless some DJ is like, 
coked out of his mind and wants to play a joke on the station management. Right. You know, who the hell? Um, yeah. But it's yeah, what the? Who's playing the Macarena? This should should be this should be Everclear. That's who we're listening to on this station at this time of day. Right. So the um, uh, the ketchup song over here on on the top ten biggest plays that Lost Ketchup has over here on Spotify. Right. Six of them. Are the ketchup song or some variation, variation thereof? Yeah. And another interesting thing about Las Ketchup Girls, there's three of them, and then they added a fourth sister to the mix too later on. If you notice, they don't sing in harmony. No. You know, they're not like in Vogue or some of the other girl vocal groups that we had seen around that time, but they're kind of like Banana Rama, where they're just. All singing at the same time. Yes, and irrespective of the pitch, tone, or rhythm of the others. It's Yeah, well, that's one of those things. If you get enough people singing all at the same time, you know, yes. eventually the pitch evens out. That's probably why they added the fourth right. one. Like, well, we need some help. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure they're waiting for their parents to make a fifth and sixth sister so they can, like, hit the high notes. Yeah. We need more ketchup. I like ketchup on exactly one food, Bill. Do you know that? I only put ketchup on one thing. Go on. Tuna fish salad. And the only thing I like on tuna fish salad, Bill, is ketchup. So I almost never eat either of those. Oh, God. That's like, are you pregnant? I know. It's the weirdest yeah. weirdest thing. I, I thought I was. I, I've kissed a girl. <laughs> I may very well be pregnant. Uh, or just bloated. I'm not sure. All right. So before we wrap up our show, we do have the answer to our very popular and always well-received trivia question. Trivia question was, who received and for what song? The first Grammy Award for rap. I got a good feeling, Jeff. You're going to get this one. All right. I'm going to try. First rap Grammy Award. I'm wondering if there isn't a hint in our worst song ever for today. I don't think so. (laughs) It wouldn't be the Sugar Hill Gang? Oh, no, 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 no. Absolutely not. No, the first first rap came out much later. All right. What, you get two? I'm going to go with my... You get two guesses all of a sudden? I get two... Uh, no, 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 no. I was just, I was just, I was just suggesting that there might be a hint in the worst song I ever. Out, I, I wasn't was, making. That a doesn't guess. count. I was thinking out loud. That's thinking out loud. Exactly. No, but I, I think it was Marvin Young or M, uh, Young MC's "Bust a Move" was the first one to get a Ooh, Grammy. Ooh, that is an excellent guess. Wrong, but it is an excellent guess. Uh, no, nope. uh, the first person to receive a Grammy has obviously not received enough awards in his lifetime. It was your friend of mine, Will Smith, better known as the Fresh Prince oh, at that Fresh time. Prince. Yep. For his song with uh, with DJ Jazzy Jeff, parents just don't understand. Yep. That was my second guess. That was your was third one, guess. To be honest with you. I was like, it's, it's one of those two. Yeah. So I, I, I chose poorly. Yeah, well, it doesn't matter how many guesses you had. They were all wrong. So <laughs> They were all wrong. All right. So that's going to wrap up this week's episode. We will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibly or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already and tell your friends. And better yet, throw us a ranking over at the Apple Podcast app. A five-star ranking.